The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am your host, Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through Super Sunday night tonight on the seventh day of February 2021. In case you're on a desert island somewhere, you're out shoveling snow. 14 to 3 Tampa Bay at this point. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always, on our Super Sunday Spectacular. Up first, we'll talk some... Mental Toughness with Coach Greg Everett. Then we'll speak to renowned sports psychologist Dr. Miles Runsdorf. He'll join us. Then we move over to the hardwood, visit with former St. John's and NBA star The Truth himself. Walter Berry will join us. Finally, we're going to have a great conversation about nothing with Larry Thomas, the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight on Super Sunday. We've got some great people, some great information, and some great stories up ahead. We always talk about social media before we begin. I invite you to follow us on Facebook. We're there. Give us a look. Give us a like. You can all follow us on LinkedIn and uh, on Twitter as well, at Sports Talk, uh, at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me at B. Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry about it because all the shows are cataloged on our website, WGBB Sports Talk New York. Now, my first guest, he has coached the Olympic sport of weightlifting for almost 15 years up to the world championship level. He was a nationally competitive lifter himself and he is now an elite competitor in the tactical games. His new book coming out on February 16th is titled Tough, Building True Mental, Physical, and Emotional Toughness for Success and Fulfillment. Pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Greg Everett. Greg, good evening. Oh, thanks for having me. appreciate it. No worries, no worries. Let's get right into it. Now, toughness, what do most people think of? When they think of toughness, give us that that stereotype uh, that that you've uncovered. Uh, pretty typically, you get the typical uh, you know tough guy persona who's yeah. bumping it, bumping into you in the bar and looking at you sideways, <laughs> and you know tends to be the uh, we look at physical strength and physical capability, uh, and we forget about all the infinite different ways that toughness is really expressed and, and challenged in our lives. Uh, so we either get that or we get very specific people, you know, uh, military, law enforcement, um, you know, first responders generally, or, you know, mountain climbers, whatever your particular interest is, we tend to focus on certain spe- uh, people like that. Okay. Now, uh, we're looking at a woman referee on the sidelines tonight down in Tampa. Are women as tough as men or, or can they be tougher? I know my wife is probably tougher than me. Absolutely. And it, it really comes down to what you're willing to do. Uh, anyone has the ability to become extremely tough, certainly tougher than they are today. Um, and you have to remember that there are so many facets to toughness. Physical strength is just one of them. So even if you are someone, woman or not, who isn't going to be the strongest physically person on earth, 
there's still so many other components to it that you can develop that what matters is that in total, at the end of the day, you are an extremely tough person. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you, you pinpoint three specific types of toughness, physical, mental, emotional. Which kind is the toughest to achieve, Greg? Uh, well, very typically, it's either going to be mental or emotional, and it depends on, on who you're talking about. But the physical stuff, folks may not like to do it. They don't necessarily want to go to the gym. Um, but that's the easiest thing to confront, right? I'm out of shape. Okay, I need to get into shape. Versus mental toughness and emotional toughness, you're doing some very serious and often very unflattering self-examination and making some very tough choices. Uh, so that's the one that we tend to shy away from the most. That's, that's the, the least appealing of the of the uh, three. Gotcha. Understood. We're speaking with Greg Everett tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, these times, very troubled times we're in, what advice do you have for somebody who's finding it uh, real hard to be tough these days during COVID-19? It is tough. A lot of us have yeah. discovered that... Uh, the security we, we imagined we had was not really what we thought, uh, finding a lot of vulnerabilities exposed. So the, the best advice really is that um, we have so much control over how we, we view our experiences, how we actually experience life, and that's based on you know our perspective and our attitude about things. And the, the point to keep in mind is that having that better perspective and that attitude doesn't make unpleasant things pleasant. Right, they they could still be miserable, but you're willing to endure those things because you know that you're going to be able to use them to your advantage, at least in the long term. So you have a proactive mentality about it. You know, what can I learn from this? How am I going to get better for the next unpredictable, uh, you know, adverse experience? Um, you know, how am I going to exploit this to my benefit rather than sitting back and feeling like the world is just coming crashing down onto you? You've been Something has been put upon you, some kind of burden. Uh, and so looking at, you know, even you can find opportunities in uh, in tough situations and, and use them to your advantage as much as possible. Right. We turn it in, from a loss into a win. I, I could see that in, in some of your uh, some of your teachings in the book. Now, in the, in the book, you talk about four C's of toughness. Uh, tell us what they are and which one do you think people generally struggle with the most? The, the first one I, I call character, and that is our, our identity, with, with uh, includes our values. You know what's truly important to us, but then also importantly uh, is our security in that identity. Uh, so we don't just know who we are, what we value, but we really trust in that. So we're not looking for you know silly competition and trying to constantly prove ourselves and get validation. Um, the next is uh, capability, and that is a really broad and, and ever-growing collection of not just physical abilities and skills, um, but the mental and emotional side of skills. So having all kinds of coping tools for difficult situations and, and being willing to put ourselves out there and, and maybe be temporarily embarrassed to try to learn something new. Uh, and then we've got capacity, which is what most of us think of as resilience, right? The ability to mm-hmm. get through a difficult experience. But what I'm looking at here is not to just make it through that experience and return to normal, but as we were just talking about, to be able to get through that experience and really actually exploit it to our advantage. So it's more like work hardening. You're going to get beat up a little bit, but you're going to come out the other end actually better, stronger, smarter, more prepared. 
And then finally, um, uh, we have commitment. <clears throat> and that includes all the, the typical things we think about with regard to discipline. Uh, but that's really the easiest way to think of it is what are you willing to do? So it doesn't mean much if you, you know who you are, you know what you value, you have a lot of skill and ability, uh, and you have a bunch of resilience. If you're not willing to put those things to use when it matters, you know, to accomplish something meaningful, it's just kind of a private fantasy you're telling yourself in the mirror every morning. Yes, yes, I'm tough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the most difficult for sure is the character side of things. Uh-huh. Um, okay. People really struggle with, with getting down to finding out what is truly the most meaningful to them, who they really are, because we have so many ideas about who we're supposed to be um, or possibly a little bit of embarrassment about who we really want to be and, and self-doubt. So, well, I would like to be this, but I don't think it's possible. So we kind of hedge our bets a little bit. So that's where the, the tricky self-assessment comes into play. And you really have to be willing to be honest with your, with your, with yourself and kind of put up with that temporary discomfort for the long-term improvement. So really, Greg, until we establish that character element, uh, strong enough, the rest is kind of fruitless and more or less difficult to achieve, correct? Yeah, and certainly you can work it all at, at the same time, but you will not be able to truly apply any of those things without having that security in who you truly are. Okay. There you have Greg Everett with us tonight, talking some toughness tonight on Sports Talk New York. Greg, what's the toughest thing personally that you've had to withstand, and what did you take away from that experience? Oh, well, going back to my days as a young lad, I suppose, with uh, a lot of little things, but ultimately he was dealing with a cocaine addiction. Oh, man. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, everyone deals with that stuff differently, but it was many years for me getting past that, and it was really discovering that I had the ability to make those decisions in life, you know, either way, and that every single decision had to be supported by consistent action and behavior. Otherwise, it didn't mean much. Uh, and so it, it takes a lot of, again, self-assessment. What do I truly want from life? Who do I want to be? And now, what do I have to do to actually be that person? And am I willing to do that work? Because it's not easy. If it were easy, none of us would be ever having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I, I took a lot away from that. Um, and, you know, obviously there are still parts of that I, I work on, and anyone with an experience like that is going to work on for a lifetime. Right. Uh, but that really solidified my belief in my own sense of agency, right? My, my understanding that everything that I wanted out of life was my responsibility to take care of. Mm-hmm. Now, the substance abuse itself, Greg, how did that affect your, uh, your practices, your, your uh, achieving your goals in lifting? certainly didn't help yeah i was gonna <laughs> uh, say yeah. that was that that preceded the the real start of my weightlifting career competitively i was right at the beginning so thankfully i kind of got past that um but i've been an athlete all my life so it, it makes it very tough and again that's one of those things where you have to make a decision what is most important to you um you know, what are you willing to do or, or what are you willing to sacrifice? And I wasn't willing to sacrifice my life. Great. Yeah. And that, and that, that worked to your favor for sure. Now yeah. you've, you've trained guys 
for world championships, Greg. Now, what, what role does toughness play in athletic achievement for these guys that you train? I actually train mostly women, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So that is, there's some very true demonstration of toughness in every imaginable way. Uh, I mean, even being a woman in a sport that is largely male-dominated and, and a lot of outsiders looking in kind of see it as a, a male sport. So already you're going up against, um, you know, a lot of stigma about that. So, But weightlifting in, in particular is an extremely mentally demanding sport where you have, um, you know, unlike a lot of team sports, where not only do you have teammates to, to fall back on when you're having a bad day, but you've got a season with quite a lot of games. You have a lot of chances and a lot of time within each of those chances to make up for mistakes. Weightlifting, you know, we train year-round, uh, you know, for months and years for certain competitions, and we get six total lifts, three of each lift, mm-hmm. and that's it. So when you make mistakes, they have an enormous impact. So you are going these months and years, uh, you know, beating yourself up physically, really having to sacrifice. Uh, you know, you're going to bed early every night. Your nutrition is really dialed in. You're not hanging out with your buddies and drinking. Um, and you, a lot of, especially in the U.S., you're setting aside potentially college. Uh, you're trying to postpone that. You're, you're not getting a good job because you have to be able to train, you know, sometimes twice a day. Uh, and so you, you are really making sacrifices and you have to be committed to the point where you're willing to say, this is okay. I can keep doing this for another, you know, three, four, six years, um, and not be panicking about that all the time. And that's not even to mention the difficulty physically. So for any sport, for any athlete to reach that truly elite level, you really, again, you have to know what you truly want, what is truly important to you, and then you have to be willing to make those tough decisions to set aside other things that do not support that decision. Okay. Now, we've looked at toughness, Greg, in competition, in practice, men and women. One place where I can see the four C's coming into play and to think about toughness is in the workplace. And this affects people everyday life, not only athletes, but but everyone. What does true toughness look like in the workplace? Well, it's going to vary a bit depending on what kind of job you do and how much you like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, a, a lot of it for so many of us is, you know, a lot of us go to jobs that we do not enjoy. Sometimes they make us downright miserable, but the key in, in situations like that is to always connect what you're doing to your true motivations, right? So maybe you don't like your job. You're certainly not motivated and enthusiastic to do those tasks involved with your job. But if you drill down, you find out, well, my true motivation is to be financially independent, to support my family. You know, whatever it is that you can find that is truly meaningful you, uh, to you. And so on those days when you're really struggling, uh, yeah, I can't stand my boss, this job is driving me nuts, you know, it's sucking my soul out of my eyeballs, whatever the case <laughs> yeah. is, um, if you can return and connect to those true values and underlying motivations, that's how you get through that stuff. Um, and then again, having that mindset of someone who is taking responsibility for the course of their own life, right? So are you a victim of this job or are you making the decision to stay in this job, to work hard, to do it with integrity, um, 
to achieve, again, what is truly meaningful for you. And that decision alone, you know, how you're viewing that, that perspective you take, can make an enormous difference in how you experience that job day to day and how you interact with people and therefore how they interact with you. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that opens up opportunities for you, you know, to potentially move to a different job, to get promoted. Um, and even if neither of those things happen, to simply not be miserable all day long. Right. I can see how the things that you talk about, Greg, about toughness in the workplace could make things a little more healthier for a lot of folks out there. And I hope to listen in and taking some of this to heart. We are speaking with uh, Olympic weightlifting coach Greg Everett about the topic toughness. Now, you have a lot of friends in the military, Greg. Um, does that take any special kind of toughness to, to be a, a soldier in the armed forces? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you are willing to sacrifice your body and your life for what you believe in, uh, that, that certainly demands a lot of respect. And that, I mean, that's, that's true for, uh, military and, and all first responders, really. I mean, any, anyone who is willing to say, this is so important to me that I am willing to be permanently injured, uh, or killed, that's a, a very specific, uh, high level of toughness. Now, of course, uh, you have the whole range of, of personality types who are attracted to those jobs. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody in there is, is a Superman or woman. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we all have things we need to work on, all things we can get better. But absolutely, there are, it is a, a small percentage of the human population that is truly that uh, committed to their beliefs. Understood. Okay. Now, throughout the book, you make examples uh, of tough people. You mention them by name. Uh, tell us about some of these folks and what makes them tough. Oh, I do the whole range. Uh, since this is New York sports, Jerry Rice is the first one that comes to mind. There you go. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about his origin story, and it's just this, you couldn't make it up better. You know, his father was a mason. Jerry would go to work with him as a kid, and his job was supplying his father bricks and he would have to catch bricks that were thrown to him. Uh, and so not only is that going to harden you up physically, it's giving you the mechanics and, you know, the hand-eye coordination and, and the hand durability and all these things that would go into being a great wide receiver and a great player, period. Um, but you, on top of that, you had a sense of purpose, right? You know, he wasn't, his dad wasn't sitting on the back porch throwing bricks at him while drinking a beer just to make him a good football player. It's kind of sadistic. <laughs> Right. He was yeah. going and, you know, helping his father support his family. And so I think, you know, Rice was renowned for his, his work ethic and, and his, um, you know, just ridiculous training intensity. And I, I think you put those couple things together and you, you feel that sense of purpose. You develop that, that work ethic and that's how you create an unstoppable athlete and a person. I mean, Outside of football, he's been remarkably successful, mm-hmm. uh, and he seems to be the kind of guy that people actually like. Right? He's not. Yeah. He's not a miserable guy. Now that he had to retire, and he hates the world. You know, he's, he seems like a, a really great guy. Um, and you, you have that anywhere from a guy named Stephen Callahan, whose solo uh, boat that he was uh, sailing across the Atlantic was struck by a whale and, and sunk, and he was alone on a life raft in the Atlantic Ocean for seventy-six days. Um, 
I mean, you, you think about simply being alone, having no interaction with another human being for 76 days. Uh, most people couldn't stand that. Now you do that in a life raft with, you know, sharks poking you every once in a while. Uh, yeah. You know, your, your solar stills aren't working, so you can't get fresh water. And, you know, the, the ingenuity that this guy showed was unreal. His raft, or his raft had a leak in it at one point. He could not fix it. And he finally discovered a way to fix it using a fork. And so that that level of resourcefulness is just so far beyond what most of us will ever experience. To, to fix a leak with an implement that we normally associate with creating leaks. You know, that, that's exactly. just a whole other level of, yeah. of mental functionality there. What an example that guy is. Stephen Callahan, folks. Look, look that one up. Another one yeah. that I found look. interesting, Greg... Uh, is the example of Admiral James Stockdale. Now, people may right. not know, uh, the younger folks, he ran for vice president at one point, uh, with Ross Perot on, on that particular ticket. And, uh, just so folks have a little background, tell us about Admiral Stockdale, Greg. So Admiral Stockdale was a, a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And, uh, there's something called the Stockdale Paradox, which was named after his experiences there and essentially what it came down to was that he found that the most optimistic POWs were the ones who died first and uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase I don't have the quote off the top of my head but it was essentially you, you have to be willing to confront the objective reality of your situation um, without you know losing your conviction that you will prevail in the end so, which is very different from simply being hopeful or optimistic, um, in, in the sense that you are denying the negative parts of your reality. So, he, you know, he's saying, "Yes, I am a prisoner of war. This is going to be a horrific experience, but I know that, you know, through my will and my my willingness to deal with this, that I will come out the other end of this." Versus, uh, yeah, this is horrible. Someone will come save me. Something will happen to fix this for me. And that's kind of just that blanket, baseless optimism that eventually, you know, every day that someone doesn't come and save you, that that gets chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. So if instead that source driving you is within yourself, that doesn't abandon you. It's always there for you to rely on, you know, to make another decision and I'm going to try this or I'm going to try this. The, the movie The Great Escape, you know, about the the, uh, mm -hmm. the prisoners of, of the German army during World War II who tunneled out, you know, 300 feet or something like that uh, using basically utensils they stole uh, out of the mess hall. You know, cases like that where that is 100% taking responsibility for the course of your life, you know, in the most extreme version. Why this book and why now, Greg? That's a great question. I don't know if I can answer adequately. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that's always been on my mind. You know, the way I grew up, I, I grew up, I was an athletic kid, but I was short and I was skinny. So I always had that sense of inferiority and that self-consciousness. But at the same time, I always had this sense that I could handle anything that was thrown at me. And so that was always very uh, confusing to me, but in, in, a, in a way that made me very curious and very interested in it, figuring out how does this work. And then just happening to have, you know, 
for the past, you know, I'm now 41, so many varied experiences with so many different types of people from athletes, you know, to the first responders and mill guys, um, and my own competitive experiences and coaching experiences. Um, and you start to see the patterns, right? You know, so there's so many different experiences and people, but they share these universal characteristics, you know, that confidence and composure and that, that sense of responsibility. And so I finally just kind of came to a point and everything coalesced enough that I felt that I could actually explain it clearly enough first to myself and then well enough for other people to hopefully get something out of it. Well, I think you, you hit your target and, uh, you, you were right on with this subject matter. Greg Everett, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night, your Super Bowl Sunday night to spend some of it with us here in snowy New York. Again, uh, it's the 16th is coming out, right, Greg? Yes, sir. You got it. The 16th, it's called Tough. Building true mental, physical, and emotional toughness for success and fulfillment. Where can people find it, Greg? Anywhere that sells books. If okay. they don't have it, they can get it for you. But, of course, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, all the big names, they'll have it. Excellent. Thanks once again, Greg. I thank Lissa, uh, our friend, for setting this up for us. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road, Greg. Greg Everett, stay well. Thank you. That's Appreciate Greg it. Everett, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, Super Sunday Spectacular. We'll welcome in Dr. Miles Runsdorf. So stay with us, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we are back. Sports Talk New York, this is our Super Sunday Spectacular on WGBB. My annual show, because I'm the only one that works on Super Bowl Sunday, so that's why I do it. Right? <laughs> exactly, our friend Brian always with us. I'm just checking the score here, folks. Um, looks like it's halftime, 21-6, to 6, Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay, hey, hey, Tampa Bay. Not too bad. Well, snowy day here on Long Island. Boy, did it come down at one point. It must have got about six inches at least. Uh, I don't know how it was up on the North Shore, but down here on the South Shore, man, it was coming down pretty good. Well, Let's get right to our next guest. He has more than 20 years of experience working with individuals and organizations, helping them to overcome disabling conditions as they strive for something better. In treatment, he relies upon his expertise and wide-ranging knowledge of psychological concepts where he works with athletes, teams, and organizations in their efforts to succeed on the field of play. It's a pleasure for me to welcome to the show tonight Dr. Miles Runsdorf. Doctor, good evening. 
Thank you, Bill. It's, I'm a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I really appreciate it. No worries. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, you're in Florida? I am in Florida. I heard you were, from, you were down here at one point in your life, too, I believe. Uh, well, it seemed like I was. I used to visit my dad uh, in, in the Tampa area once a month for 10 years I was down there. So I guess you okay. could say I did live down there. And, uh, okay. I just, uh, I like the area. I have, the, you know, that affinity towards it. And that's why I root for Tampa Bay because I used to go to some of the games, uh, okay. while I was down visiting my dad. And, uh, I, I like the whole experience. And, uh, that's why, uh, I'm rooting the way I am this evening. <laughs> that's the story. I, I, I got person. I'm sorry, go on. That's it. That's the story of that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I've, I've got, I've got no stake in this game. I'm a Giants fan, so I just want, I'm just happy to see a good game. Yeah, good. And then that's the way I believe most people are tonight. I don't think you have any hardcore fans. It's a, it's really an American holiday, and that's the way we should look at it, I believe. It's a festive, uh, experience for everybody, especially the Buffalo wing makers. And, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's for sure. Now, yep. doctor, you have more than 20 years of experience working with, you work with individuals and organizations. Uh, you help them to overcome disabling conditions. What I'd like to talk to you about is what's easier to work with, the individual or an entire organization? Give us an example if you can. Well, as, as a sports psychologist, it, it really depends on the, the age and the sport, to be honest. Um, the younger athletes, I, I tend to work with them individually. They get more out of it that way. Um, older athletes, high school, college, etc. Oftentimes, it's it's a team dynamic um, issue. Um, you know, lack of motivation on the team. The coaches might be doing everything that they can do, but there's still something missing, something not clicking between the players. So I work with teams in that manner as well. Okay. Now, the disabling conditions that we speak of. Give us an example of some right. of those. Well, it, it could be just a lack of confidence. Yeah. Um, you know, uh-huh. it could be having performance anxiety. Um, a lot of the younger athletes I work with have what I call the negative brain chatter. Uh, the, the I can't and I'm not good enough and, you know, if I make a mistake, what's going to happen? Am I going to lose my spot? Um, another condition is the high expectations that other people have for the young athlete, um, the coaches, the parents, uh, scouts. Uh, anybody. So it's, there's so much pressure on these young athletes to perform that external factors tend to often get in their way. Understood, Doctor. Now, you rely upon your 20 years of expertise, as we said. Mm-hmm. What psychological con- concepts do you rely upon when working with uh, guys, teams, organizations? Well, um, I, I'm 20 years in the field, 20 plus years in the field of psychology. Mm-hmm. I have background in clinical psychology, school psychology, and sports psychology. Um, I have uh, degrees in each one. Um, you know, in, in terms of the approach I take, you know, it's, it's a behavioral cognitive approach um, where we look at the mind-body connection and and how that affects performance. And, you know, there's a saying, as the mind goes, so goes the body. Mm-hmm. If you're confident and feeling really good about yourself, you, you have a greater chance of performing. If you're not confident, if you have a lot of negative thoughts about your abilities, uh, a lot of self-doubt, it's going to make your muscles t- tense, you're going to become tight, your breathing's going to become more rapid, and you're just not going to perform at the highest level. It's just not going to be, ha- it's just not going to be possible. Right. 
We're speaking with Dr. Miles Runsdorf tonight on the program. Now, the mental and physical strengths and weaknesses of the particular performer you're, you're working with. Um, how do you work to develop a treatment program uh, for the problem person, the problem organization, and does anything serve as a roadblock or impediment to uh, achieving your your particular goal? A lot of it comes right down to the athlete themselves um, and their motivation level, the amount of uh, the, the willingness to make sacrifices. Uh, the really the willingness to put in the time to get better. And when I work with an athlete or even or a team, such as an or organization, typically we do a bit of a background information. We find out what's been going on, um, what the strengths are that the person or teammates are able to do, what the weaknesses are, and then you know we set about a plan that would have things like uh, you know, challenging, realistic, and achievable goals. A lot of times, I when I work with the younger athletes, the goals are unbelievably unrealistic they're not achievable and it's it's like spinning your wheels you know the um mm-hmm. the rotating entryway that, that goes around and around and around it's all you do it's just spinning your wheel running in place getting no place so you know i'm a, I'm a strong believer in the goal setting approach short-term goals intermediate goals and long-term goals and these goals you have to be very flexible with them because they can change as you go and they actually should change as you go. It's nothing set in stone here. It's a very fluid situation. If it's not working, you know, you go back and you reevaluate the situation. And then you, you establish new goals that might get you in, a, in, in the direction you want to go. Um, mm-hmm. another, um, uh, another technique I use is we are, I really stress to focus on what you can control. There's so much out there when you're in a competitive environment that is not controllable. But unfortunately, too many athletes are focused on those kinds of things. Um, you know, you know, worrying about letting my teammates down. Uh, what if I fail in this situation? What are people going to say about me? Well, you know what? They're going to say something no matter what. Okay? If you're focusing on that, it's not going to work. If you're focusing on the end results, it's not going to work. It's not controllable. Um, in terms of baseball, the only one who really is in control is the pitcher. And that's until he releases the ball. You know, you can control your body language, you can control your breathing, your attention, your focus, but you can't control much else out there. If you're, if you're a batter, you can't control the ball after you hit the ball. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't control the umpire, you can't control the opponents, the fans in the stands. So by removing the things you cannot control, you are able to focus more on what's in your control, such as your goals that we mentioned before, and, you know, you can work towards achieving those goals by ignoring all the extraneous variables. And to me, the most important part of this whole thing is to trust in the process. If you've already put in the time, um, like I said before, made the sacrifices, um, you really put in the work to do it. If you trust in the process, it should take you to a, to a place where you have the potential for success. doesn't mean you're going to have success, going to have success, excuse me, but it gives you an opportunity to reach that success. What I find intriguing, Doctor, is that you focus on the athlete's mind-body relationship and the correlation between the two. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, In terms of the mind-body relationship, I'm sorry, I thought you were going to ask me a question. In terms of the the mind-body relationship, um, actually, a lot of my training goes back to my early days as a psychologist um, when I 
found Anthony Robbins. I'm sure you know who that is. Everybody knows who Anthony Robbins is. Right. And he just talked about the belief system. If you believe in yourself, your body will follow. If you don't have the belief in yourself, it's going to be a struggle. Uh, and that's where, you know, in terms of relationships, in terms of just feeling good about yourself, in terms of, um, you know, just achieving things in your life. If you have the right mindset, and, and I like to talk, talk uh, describe it as mental toughness. Right. Um, if you have the right mental approach, the mental toughness, the right mindset, okay, you're going to, your body's going to follow through. You're going to do the right things. You're not going to be thinking about making mistakes as much. Your plan is going to work. It's going to be much more efficient. We just spoke to, prior to you, Dr. Uh, Greg Everett, who has a book out called Tough. And uh, it's great how, how my first two guests correlate like this and uh, interchanging topics almost. And uh, he was fascinating to listen to as well. Now, you work with kids who desire uh, better game day experiences, the high school athlete who want to go on to college, the college athlete with a uh, look towards professional sports, and amateurs who dream like playing like champions. And uh, don't we have to be a little realistic here, though, Doctor? We, You know what? Setting, setting goals to play professionally is not a bad goal. However, yes, we do have to be realistic about things. There are mm-hmm. some people who just don't have the innate talent to play at the highest level. But it doesn't mean they can't play at their best at their own level. Right. Okay. okay. Um, in terms of the, the youth athletes and wanting to play in college, you know, I mean, let me use my son as an example. The goal that we set, or he set really many, many years ago, was to play in college, get a scholarship, play in college. That's when he was six years old. Well, you know, was it realistic? Yes. Was it definitely going to happen? No, because as far as I understand, only about 7% of high school baseball players go on to play in college with a scholarship. So, in terms of my son, he did get that scholarship. He is going to be playing next year in college. Now, he wants to play professionally. Is he going to play professionally? Man, that would be awesome. I'd love to see it. But in, in terms of the odds of that happening, he's going to finish his college degree, um, and that's, that's a given. Mm-hmm. We, we, we definitely know that. In terms of the amateur, you know, but just like me, when I go out and play ball or if I'm hitting golf balls, I still want to be the best I can be. I don't want to go, I don't want to go outside on a nice day here in South Florida and hit golf balls into the water. I want to have a good day and when I'm done with my four or five hours on the, on the golf course, I want to go home feeling good about myself. Sure. So, so like I said, the amateur, I get it. You know, I'm the amateur. I, you know, I still dream of playing professionally. It's never going to happen. I'm 54, but you know, I want to enjoy my time. And in terms of the college player, it's, it's very much the same thing because when you're in that, in college, you know, everybody is a good player. Okay. Obviously, you could still have the goals of playing further. Um, and I would hope you would have the goals because what else motivates you? Um, if you're not, don't have a goal to play maybe outside of college or to, you know, break a record on your team. I mean, we all need to be motivated by something. And, and like I said before, setting goals, they don't, you don't have to accomplish every goal you, you make, but as long as you're working towards them, you can achieve success at any level of competitive sports. Mm-hmm, good point. Now, you work with competitors from uh, re- really a range of sports-related activities. 
mm-hmm. and you assist them in reaching for new new heights using the mental toughness angle to uh, incorporate into their activities. Uh, let's talk about some of the different uh, athletes you've worked with and, and what sports they're involved in, etc. Okay. Um, I, I, I would say probably 75% of the athletes I work with are, are baseball players. That's, mm-hmm. my, that's my sport of choice. I've been a baseball fan um, you know, since I'm five years old. A Mets fan, diehard Mets fan. However, I appreciate other teams. I don't hate the Yankees. Well, I know a lot of people do. Uh, who aren't, who aren't Yankee fans. Um, in, in, in terms of, I'm sorry, my phone keeps cutting out. People are texting me. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Uh, I apologize. Can you tell me, ask me the question? I am so sorry. Yeah, no, I just wanted to check with you, doctor, on the, the range of activities that some of your, oh, uh, clients, yeah, uh, yeah. are involved in. Yeah. Right. Uh, baseball, thank you very much. Sorry about that. All the text messages were, Distracting me. I should have focused on what I can control. That's okay. Uh, I know. Um, baseball is my first and foremost love. I know baseball. My son plays baseball. I've been reading. So I work with a lot of baseball athletes. However, I have swimmers that I work with, uh, soccer players. I uh, have had a few Division One um, uh, athletes that I've worked with over time. Uh, baseball, uh, I'm sorry, uh, football players. Um, all kinds of them, uh, players like that. Now, we spoke with uh, Greg Everett uh, a little while ago about the mental toughness, men versus women. Do you, do you see uh, both men and women? Yes, I do. And who do you do. think, who do you feel is uh, easier to deal with in the mental toughness arena, men or women? Well, you know what? I don't see a difference. When you're coming okay. to someone like me, you want to get better. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a man. If you're a competitive person and you want to achieve at the highest levels, all you have to have is the mindset before. You have to have the passion. You have to have the willingness to fight for what you want, the, 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 the ability to get back up after you've been kicked to the ground because in competitive sports, we know there's so much failures, failure that happens from sports. If you can get yourself back up, it doesn't matter, man or woman, as long as you want to get someplace as long as you want to achieve some success, you'll get there. Interesting. Okay. Now, I, I read, uh, I believe it was on your Facebook page, that you're going to be involved with Ron Bloomberg. Tell us a little bit about yes, that. Uh, I've known Ron um, for a long time. I'm actually Art Shansky, uh, a wonderful person, a great friend of mine. Uh, um, Art introduced me to him about a dozen years ago. I held an event in in, uh, in Boca Raton, where I had the I had I had several members of the four, uh, six and nine Mets down in Boca, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the Mays and Mets World Championship, and I wanted a few other guys too. And Art, who's very close to Ron, uh, got me in touch with Ron, and and since that time, right, Ron came down. He was also part of it, even though he wasn't with the Mets then. Um, but you know, we just became really close over the years. I've been following. He has a, a Zoom show every Tuesday. They talk with ball players, you know, uh, mostly older ball players. They reminisce about the old days. They talk about um, they talk about the state of the game today compared to the state of the game when they played. Mm-hmm. And you know, we started talking more and more on the side, and had the idea that you know I should come on 
um, every now and then and talk sports psychology with athletes. And one of the things I would do is, you know, maybe you can give an example to young athletes of how you overcame this situation in your career. What did you do? What would you say to a high school player who just gave up the, uh, you know, the game-ending home run, you lost the championship? And there's plenty of ball players out there who, unfortunately, have been on that side of things. Right. Now, how do you get past that? I mean, you never really get over it, but how do you get past that so you can move on and continue enjoying the thing? So one of the things I'm going to be doing with Vaughn is, is something like that. We're going to talk with athletes. We're going to pose sports side questions to them and see what they can actually say and especially say to the young athletes who need need advice from people who've been there good that sounds like a, a very worthwhile activity for you guys to get involved in. i know i've had ron on the show a couple of times he's a great guy and i can yep. see how how fitting your topics in into a, a regular sports slot like that would be very advantageous to to a lot of kids a lot of adults uh people looking to, to gain that competitive edge that's for sure. Now, w- one thing I wanted to, to go on further is uh, how do people uh, get in touch with you, doctor, if they want to utilize uh, your services? I'll give you my email address. If, um, okay, go ahead. Doc, it's Dr. Miles, D-O-C-T-O-R, Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, 41. So it's drmiles41 at gmail.com. I have a 41 in my email, too, doctor. Where do we get that number from? Where do you think we... I, won. <laughs> I don't know. Something about the franchise, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, baseball while, while I got you on. Um, okay. Who's your favorite Met of all time? Well, I think uh, most there of you the go. Tom Seaver. Yeah. I'll tell you, Tom Seaver, of course. Right. And I, it, I'll tell you how it... How, you want to hear how it happened? It's a funny little story. Yeah, about, sure. Go ahead. I'm, I'm about... Five, six years old. By the way, I still had my Mets cap when I was five years old. So I'm about five or six years old, and it was a Sunday, um, and a Sunday morning, and it's a beautiful day. Maybe not morning, early, early afternoon. It's a beautiful day. I knew I always loved baseball, already loved baseball. I knew I already loved the Mets. And I'm sitting there, the Mets game is about to start, and my father comes in and says, Miles, it's a beautiful day. Go outside and play. So, but dad, the Mets game is on. Yeah. If you can name one player, I'll let you watch. And right then and there, Bob Murphy, in the old gravelly voice when he used to announce, uh, said, now pitching for the Mets, Tom Seaver. And I looked up on my dad and go, Tom Seaver. I had no idea who he was. <laughs> I had no idea at that age that he was Tom Terrific. And uh, over the years, I came to learn. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Tom Seaver. And my first ever game at Shea was in about 1977, before the dreaded trade. Mm-hmm. And I'm not over it yet, by the way. Oh, no, I know, yeah. <laughs> and we lost Kingman that that, that night, too. Eh, but not, you know, I, not as bad. <laughs> not as bad. You know, I missed I miss his home runs. I don't miss his strikeouts, but I missed the home runs. <laughs> yeah. They were something. Yeah. Um, but I, my first game, Tom Seaver in early 77, um, came in to sub for John Matlack. Matlack had been in an accident the day before, a car accident the day before. Seaver comes in on a couple days rest, pitches a complete game, shutout. The Mets win one nothing. John Milner hits the home run, and I still remember that day. And I was not even eleven. I was almost. I was ten years old, going on eleven. And ever since those days, I have, you know, what I mean. Again, I've always loved the Mets. Oh, by the way, my daughter's name is Shay. Oh boy. Okay. Definitely. 
So, you know, it's funny because Ron uh, Bloomberg said, we're going to have to make you a Yankee fan. I'm like, I don't know. I got a better nah, show. That doesn't work that way, Boomer. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's it does. funny, Doc, how, how those first memories of a ball game stick in your head like that. M mine was back in the 60s. And the first game I went to was the Mets and the, and the Los Angeles Dodgers at Shea in the evening. And I remember coming through the runway like you used to do, stepping out into the stands and see that uh -huh. green grass and that oh, scoreboard yeah. with all sorts of colors. And uh, it was just amazing. And my father bought me one of those plastic batting helmets. And I was in oh, heaven, yeah. I'll tell you. <laughs> I remember seeing the, the field live for the first time because when I was a kid, I had a black and white television. Of course, so yeah. Seeing, <laughs> right. So seeing the green grass and the orange clay and the blue walls, and the, I mean, oh my God, I was, I, I still remember actually this moment. I got goosebumps just reliving that moment. Um, you know, we went, um, you know, over the years, I became a Mets, uh, ticket holder back when I, when I got to college and I was there in 86 and oh my God, I remember. I was at the game when uh, Sosha hits the home run against Gooden in 88. Oh, like, no, uh, yeah, that's rough. that was one of the rough moments along the way, yeah. Doc. I'll tell you, yeah. that, that was terrible. Um, give us a little insight into some of your, your favorite Met memories. My favorite memories, well, again, the first game I went to, right. uh, being at game six, is I don't think much is going to top that. No, that, that, that's, for, that's up there, yeah. It's up there, but I'm going to tell you honestly, and one of the best memories I've got, and back then I, I, I wouldn't have thought about it, but now in hindsight I, I, I definitely cherish this moment. Uh, in 2015 when the Mets were in the World Series, I took my, my two boys and my dad up to New York. We had tickets to game four. I think it was Matt's pitching that night, and a couple of things happened that night. First, I was supposed to take a buddy of mine who's in Jersey, um, he's a Yankee fan, but I was going to take him anyway. But my dad, like, I want to go, I want to go. And my dad, I'm like, Dad, you don't care about baseball. You don't like baseball. You're going to sit there and play chess on your phone the whole game. <laughs> oh, I promise I won't. I promise I won't. So what happens is this. We fly up, and um, we go in. And you know how sometimes the per one person, lucky fan, gets pulled out of the crowd, and they get to get all these goodies, these perks. Well, sure. I got pulled out of the crowd. Oh, boy. Um, they gave me a MasterCard with like 500 bucks on it. I got a phone charge or a, a, a towel. I got a David Wright signed jersey. And I was going to be on the a small uh, commercial for MasterCard in between uh, in, in the seventh inning stretch. I had to get down there at the top of the sixth inning. So I'm missing an inning and a half. Um, I'm gone for a good 45, 50 minutes. I come back and everybody give me high fives. My kids had videoed the thing because it was on the, the jumbotron that they had, and all these high fives pats in the backs. So my dad looks up from his seat on his phone playing chess. Goes, "Where were you?" Oh, Unbelievable. <laughs> where was I? You know, and, and it's, a, it's a sweet memory because he's since passed. Yeah. And, um, at this moment, I'm so glad that I took him to that game with us. Sure. Because that, that's another I, great I, you know, memory. I, I'll cherish that. So, in terms of moments. You know what? I've had several really good ones. Um, oh, I have another memory that's nothing to do with this. But in 1979, I remember this, the Mets had to win their last six games of the season just not to lose 100, and they did. They ended up 63 and 99, and I'm like, oh, my God, thank God. That was a year when we lost five games in one three-day weekend to the Phillies, and I watched every inning of every game that weekend, and I'm like, oh, my God, what a wasted weekend it was. Yeah, there was, was there were some rough times along the way, Miles. That, that that's for yeah. sure. 
Now, um, what, what was, I lost my train of thought here. Uh, it must be exciting, like me, to be in your position where you get to deal with, with these guys. I mean, you're going to be involved with Bloomberg. Uh, tell us a little more about the event you had down in Boca for the uh, 69 Mets. Oh, it was all, it was it was beyond awesome, and and being a a baseball fan, I'm not just a baseball fan. Okay, uh, I have a memorabilia collection that dates back to the mid 1800s. I, I I consider myself an amateur baseball historian. I know everybody from um, the you know uh, Andrew Cartwright and the Knickerbocker Rules and Cap Anson and everything. I mean, I just I have memorabilia, Lou Gehrig stuff, Babe Ruth stuff, Cy Young stuff. I have got so much stuff because it's my happy place. Sure. Uh, it's, it's like I have a man cave, and I have just tons of memorabilia on the walls and in glass cabinets. Um, but being a Mets fan, what happened is I did Mets fantasy camp um, a dozen years ago. I did it twice. Um, my wife let me do it a second time because the very first time I did it, I'm at second base. Felix Mion, who was one of my favorite players as a kid, and he's a good friend of mine now today, uh, Felix Mion is standing right behind me in the tryouts, and I pulled a hamstring on the first double play turn in, in tryouts oh, man. and I had a terrible spring so my wife let me come back the second year well by coming back the, the next year I had developed a good relationship with Ron Sabota oh, I love that guy, terrific man um, and Eddie Cranepool yes. great guys and, uh, yep. a couple of, uh, great guys and another guy Rod Gaspar mm-hmm. who's, uh, he only played for a little while but he was on that team and he's a terrific terrific person out in California um, so I started thinking, well, listen, I want to do something. You know, I want to get into the baseball world. I'm, I, I had just gotten my degree in sports psychology. I was opening up a baseball facility in, in Florida. I was kind of, I was closing my clinical psychology practice and I was going to practice sports psychology in my own baseball facility. Unfortunately, that ended up closing years later. But before that, um, I got in touch with Ron Sobota. Ron got me in touch with Art Chamsky again. By the way, I got to say this real quickly. Art mm-hmm. and his girlfriend Teresa, are responsible for me being with you tonight, and I could not, could not be more thankful to them for this. They are unbelievable people. Good people. I see Art down here in Florida a lot. We had coffee the other day. I love hanging with these guys. Um, it's very surreal mm-hmm. that I am friends with 69 Mets. I mean, I was three years old, and that's my, that's my tied for my same, that's the tied for my favorite team, like with the, with the 86 Mets, and I never saw him play. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, uh, I'm going to give Art a plug because his book, um, uh, After the Miracle, oh, my God, it is a great, great read. Um, it made me laugh. It made me smile. It made me cry. But it made me feel like I was there. Yeah, he okay? did a great it, job it, it, on really that book. It really did. Yeah. Because y- you, had it, you had the story being told from the eyes of the players, not from just an author. Although Eric Sherman, the co-author of that book, did a great, great, great job. It just made me feel like, oh, my God, I'm a fly on on the wall in the clubhouse listening to these stories. And then they took a trip out to see Seaver and, and Calistoga. And, ah, oh, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was so awesome. Magic. But at the same time, you knew that it was probably the last time they were going to see him. Yeah. But I, and I digress, obviously. But through these guys, um, I got in touch with Ron Bloomberg. I already knew Lenny Randall um, and Rod Gaspar. And I said, listen, this is what I want to do. I want to celebrate. There's so many Mets fans here in South Florida, especially the Boca Raton area. I'm mm-hmm. right outside of Boca. But there's so many Mets fans that what if I was to do something 
to celebrate the 40th anniversary of, in my mind, one of the two greatest World Series ever. And and Ron Sabota loved the idea. He got me in touch with Art, like I said, and Art and I quickly became um, friends. He loved the idea. I brought him down here. We had a great dinner at an Italian restaurant here. Unfortunately, that night we had nine inches of rain, so half the people who had paid to come couldn't make it. And, mm-hmm. you know, people in Boca, they want their money back, so I had to give them money back. But the next day, it was great. We had a baseball clinic for young kids, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And it was run, it was run by Sirbota and Shamsky and Bloomberg and a couple of the other guys I had here. And I'm telling you, to see these guys, these kids, they had a great time. The dads and the grandfathers who showed up had a better time. Oh, that is great, Miles. I tell you, it's been a real pleasure having you with us. It's been great talking baseball and mental toughness with you. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us up here in New York. Well, thank you, Bill, and be safe in this cold weather up there. You too, Doctor. Stay well. That's Dr. Miles Rundorfs, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, Super Sunday Spectacular. We'll talk to the truth himself, Walter Berry. He's going to stop by. Stay with us, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.